you have your Bible with you, would you please open to the book of James? And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you. And we're going to start in James chapter 1 this morning. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, you'll find James chapter 1 on page 1196. 1196 in your pew Bible. So today's going to be just a little bit different. We're going to try out something new and uh, see how it goes. And uh, if it goes well, great. And if it doesn't, well, we'll try better next week. Uh, Way back in October, we began our study in the book of James. And we've taken it passage by passage, little by little. We've had some stops and starts here and there. And we wrapped up the book. We finished going through every verse last Sunday. But our goal is never just to finish the book as if it's just an endurance event and we've got to plow through it. Uh, my hope is always that we would carry away from a study of any book of the Bible a big picture understanding of what that book is about. If you're ever on Jeopardy and the category is James, you ought to be able to nail all of these questions and know everything about them. We've taken a microscopic study of James over the past several months. Today, we're going to pull way back, and we're going to look at James from 30,000 feet. We're going to do a big picture overview of the book of James to help tie together the key themes and the main ideas that James is communicating to us as individual believers and us as a church. Think about this. When this letter originally arrived in the first church that it was intended for, they didn't read it six lines at a time over the course of several, several months. They sat down and they listened to the letter read in whole, and they received it as a whole. And yes, the letter has some pinpoint applications in the lives of hearers, but also the book in total has a voice and a message that is consistent throughout and has something to say to us. And so uh, we're going to do our best this morning to get a big picture of James, tying together some of these main themes that we've talked about throughout our study. And uh, our goal is not just information digestion, but that we would be transformed by interaction with this book. Uh, I don't know about you, maybe because you're, around, you're from around here longer than I have been, you don't need GPS, but it is for me now an absolute crutch. I, I find that I need GPS all the time whenever I'm driving. And oftentimes, even with GPS going and the little computer voice speaking to me in the car, I still go in the wrong direction. Sometimes the GPS voice doesn't seem as clear as it could be. Most of the time, I'm a lot more dense than I should be is probably the real reason for things. My guess is most of us have experienced that thing where we take a wrong turn and our GPS just begins to melt down, right? The little voice inside uh, begins just recalculating the route that we're supposed to be going. So the voice will say things like, rerouting, turn left in 10 feet. Why are you doing this? Make peace with your personal God. You've made a horrible decision. But that GPS, it, it, it has one goal in mind. You, you put in the goal, and it's got the direction laid out, and, and all it's thinking about is that one thing, that one goal that gets you there. Well, James writes this letter to a church that is headed in the wrong direction. 
James doesn't write with panic. He's not having a meltdown. But he does write with passion because he understands how dire the situation is. When the church malfunctions, people are hurt. But when the church follows Jesus, lives are transformed. And so in a study of James, it's important for us to realize who his audience is. He's writing to a faith community. He's writing to a church. And the applications are meant to be corporate first and foremost. He's not writing necessarily to individual believers about their one-on-one relationships with God and others, although there's absolutely individual application required in a study of this letter. And if any church is going to be a church that learns the lessons of James and applies them in a redemptive and healthy and Christ-honoring way, then it's going to start at an individual level. You and I as individuals striving after Jesus are what makes our church work in a way that honors Jesus and reflects him. But James has in mind, first and foremost, the corporate body, the church on the whole. And his concern is for Christians within the church and our behavior. You know, James doesn't spend a lot of time on theological matters, does he? I mean, he'll talk a bit about the relationship between faith and works. But even that discussion is guided towards a change of behavior. James insists that a true faith in Jesus Christ results in a different way of living, a different ethic, a different speech, different relationships, a different way of valuing and treating people. James is concerned throughout with behavior. He wants you and I to follow Jesus in tangible, practical ways. And in so doing, our church becomes a powerful force for the sake of the gospel and the sake of lives around us. And so my goal this morning in this big overview of the book of James is to encourage you to pursue a whole life devotion to Jesus Christ. James targets all these specific areas in which you and I are to be devoted to Christ. And so to to attain this goal, my intention is to highlight five major themes in this book, which are areas in which Jesus Christ transforms the church. Now, there could be an argument that there's more than five themes. That's very possible. And with an overview like this, there's certainly some things that are going to be left off the table. That's not to say they're not as important. uh, But for the sake of our study this morning and the time that we have, we're going to focus on five themes, these areas in which Jesus transforms the church. We're going to start in chapter 1 and verse 2. Listen to how James opens his letter to the church. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man shouldn't think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So if I were to ask you, just from the opening words of James's letter, what do you learn about the church he's writing to? How would you answer? You would say, well, this is a church that's going through trials. Verse 2 identifies it. James isn't just pulling hypotheticals out of thin air. He's writing 
in the context this church exists in. So he's speaking to them about how to endure trials, how to make it through these hard times. And so the first area that James speaks to, the first area in which Jesus transforms the church is in our wisdom. If you're taking notes, number one, wisdom. So James opens the letter by giving this persecuted church a framework within which they can understand their suffering, telling them to consider it joy whenever they face trials of many kinds. This is exactly the thing you probably aren't happy to read on your hardest day. Those days when you just say, I'm going to flip open the Bible and see where the Lord takes me. And then you read, consider it joy. It doesn't feel like joy whenever we're going through hardships and trials. I think that's why we have to listen to James so closely. He's not out of touch with reality. James knows persecution well, and he knows it personally. And James is guiding a broken church in how to handle trials and hardships. So this church is suffering because of their allegiance to Christ, and James tells them, count it all joy. And why? Because it's in their hardship in which their likeness to Christ is perfected. Persecution, trials, temptations, hardships of all kinds are not moments of defeat for the Christian. They're not even abnormal. They are the places where our faith is refined and our living is transformed. Here's why James's letter is so important for me personally, maybe for you as well. When I face hardship, my first prayer is often, God, get me out of this. Where'd my comfort go? Aren't things supposed to be easy for me? God, return my ease. But James directs us to a different prayer. Lord, Don't take me out of this until I look as much like Jesus as possible. I count it all joy in this trial. Because through this hardship, you are purifying my faith. You are transforming my character. You are making me more and more like my Jesus who suffered in my place. In this trial, give me all of Jesus. Don't take me out until I look like him. It's in our trials that we take on great likeness to Christ and therefore we can consider our trials all joy. Don't paint on a happy face. Don't wipe away the tears. Don't pretend like it's wrong to feel sad. But even in the hardship, the Christian has joy as we are shaped like Christ. After talking about these trials, James then makes what seems like a weird pivot and he begins to tell the church to pray for wisdom. Verses 5 and 6 He tells us perseverance has to finish its work, and and then he tells us if we lack wisdom to ask for it. That seems like a change in direction, but really it's not. It's James' instruction to a suffering church. How should we pray in the midst of persecution? Pray for wisdom. Now, James has a different understanding of wisdom than we do. When you and I think of wisdom, we're thinking about the ability to make the best decision out of a few choices. Now, James wouldn't disagree entirely with that, but biblical wisdom is decidedly different. It has a distinct uniqueness to it. You see, the Bible's approach to wisdom is not just knowledge that enables us to make a choice, but it is knowledge that empowers us to do the will of God in every situation. 
So again, wisdom is not just making the right choice out of two choices, but how do I obey God? How do I walk in His will, even in a context of trials and hardships? Biblical wisdom is intimately tied to obedience. Jesus, for example, says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, He says, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Wisdom and doing, wisdom and obedience go hand in hand. So a person of wisdom obeys Jesus, trusts Jesus, follows Jesus, no matter what, and especially in the season of trials. Wisdom may give us direction on a decision. It may give us restraint in a response. It may lead us to forgive. It may help us to wait. It may guide us to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. Wisdom says in prayer, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Wisdom manifests itself in so many God-glorifying ways in the life of the church. The church that is full of wisdom turns the day of trial into a day of joy. James wants the church to be a church that endures hardship while walking in line with what Christ desires for us. Wisdom is a major theme of the book of James because it is a major place in which Jesus transforms a church. There's a second theme that James points to, a second area in which Jesus transforms a church, and that's in the area of worship. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 are all about worship. Now, your heading may not say worship. It might say something about favoritism, and that's okay. But there is a distinct connection between worship and relationships. In chapter 2, you'll recall, James calls out the church for its horrible treatment of poor and weak Christians. Look with me, chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 1. James says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who Excuse me, those who love him. So, what's the connection between worship and relationship? Well, here in chapter 2, James highlights this area of incredible dysfunction in the church. Can you imagine such a scene where the greeter at the door directs wealthy and powerful and influential people to the padded seats but tells the impoverished, the shabby, the poorly dressed, you get to sit here in the dirt. Can you imagine a scene in the church of Jesus Christ? That's what's happening here. This is not some hypothetical. James is calling out this wicked behavior among God's people. And so what happens then is they're gathering for worship, they're mistreating the people in their congregation, and then they're still singing the songs and reading the Word and rehearsing the teachings and taking the Lord's Supper, doing the things a church ought to do while at the same time utterly destroying the weakest among them. 
their worship is unacceptable because of their sin against each other. Throughout all of Scripture, the way God's people treat each other is an indicator of the quality of their worship. When God's people mistreat others, their worship becomes empty and offensive to God. There's examples all across Scripture of this. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, the high priest Eli has two sons who served along with him in the priesthood. And his sons are gluttonous, corrupted, thuggish, lustful pigs of sons. And their mistreatment of people turned their worship profane and solidified their judgment by God. The prophet Amos spoke God's judgment on Israel. And among Israel's sins that he highlights, he says, You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. And you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Because of their sin, God detests their worship. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 takes God's people to task because of their self-centered behavior towards each other. He tells them they shouldn't even take the Lord's Supper as long as they're treating each other with such evil. If they continue to worship without repentance, they bring the judgment of God on themselves. Pete read this morning from uh, Psalm 130, a psalm of worship, a psalm in which the family of faith together ascends the hill of the Lord in worship. That worship is acceptable because God's people are together. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, if you are offering your sacrifice at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Don't worship. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Right relationships and right worship go hand in hand. And so you may not have forced someone to sit at your feet in the sanctuary this morning, but the challenge from James is still very clear. We have to pay attention to the way we treat each other, the way we care for each other. What we have received from God, we have to give to others. We're recipients of mercy and grace and love and value And so whoever the person is that's in our path should get the same from us. They should get love, not judgment. They will get gospel, not indifference. The priority is put on making sure people are valued and loved properly and doing that before we come to worship. The church that's wholly devoted to Christ obeys the law of love in order to worship well. We have a lot of metrics when it comes to determining what worship is acceptable. And in modern conversations, that normally revolves around personal preferences, instruments, song choice, things like that. First and foremost, the mature church makes sure relationships are right so that worship, in whatever way it's packaged, is honoring to God. God doesn't care about style. He cares about relationship. Jesus Christ transforms a church in the area of our worship, transforms us in the area of wisdom. Third place Christ transforms us is our work. Jesus transforms us in the area of our work. So the second half of chapter 2 highlights this. There's many places where the letter of James, I think, makes us uncomfortable. If, If you've been with us throughout this study, You may recall a few Sundays where we read something and you said, (laughs) 
James is good at that, creating that type of moment because he speaks such direct truth. But this area here in the second half of chapter 2 is probably primary among our uncomfortableness. And the reason is this. James says in chapter 2, verse 24, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the reason that makes us feel so uncomfortable is because Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, says what seems like the exact opposite. James has said we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. So this is where we just hope our non-believing friends don't highlight this seeming contradiction and instead we can deal in something else that's a little easier for us to handle. Because again, it seems like such a glaring contradiction between the two. To make matters worse, both Paul and James use Abraham as proof to solidify their points. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, my contention was and is that there is no contradiction between James and And Paul, and if you and I are going to understand this letter best, we've got to get this point down. There's no contradiction between the two, but together they speak of a full picture of salvation. So how is it that they're not contradicting each other? Well, when Paul speaks of works, he's speaking of the erroneous belief that my good works will save me. That my religious deeds or my irreligious deeds, whatever measure I use to consider myself good, that's something that will save me. But James, when he speaks of works, he's speaking of the works that come after salvation. How can I show that I'm truly saved? I'm truly saved by the works that are evident in my life. So take Paul. Paul writes to Gentile Christians who are being told by false Christians that if they are not circumcised, if they do not keep the law, if they don't observe holy days and special diets, then they are not saved. And so when Paul speaks of works, these are the kinds of works he has in mind. Imagine a timeline across the front of the stage here, the timeline of your life. You're born at the piano, you die at the drums, something like that. There's not a hidden message there, I'm just using what's on the stage. (coughs) Right here in the center, this is the moment at which you are converted. On the timeline of your life, right here at the pulpit, is the place where you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, you call on Christ, and God has completed his justifying work in your life here in this moment. This is the salvation moment here. So when Paul writes about works, he's writing about all the works between birth and salvation. So if you were to come to this moment and say, I'm saved because I was a good Baptist or I was baptized as a baby or I attended church on snowy days or I I had this high moral standard. If you were to say these things are what saves me, Paul says, that's not true. And James says, amen to that. Because James says, God has chosen to save those who are rich in faith. It's faith that saves us from our sin. Paul's perspective when he talks about faith and works is on our life up to the point of salvation. It's not works that save us. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
You're not saved from being a religious person, a good citizen, a, a good patriot, a veteran, a, a, a paying your taxes. What? That's not it. Those things are all important. But that's not what atones for your sin against God. The only thing that pays for sin, the only thing that saves, is faith in the one who died in your place. Your sin has to be dealt with. It's dealt with once and for all by Jesus Christ who died on the cross in your place. He died your death. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He conquered death. Everyone dies. Only Jesus Christ has risen from the dead in this fashion for the sake of our salvation. So Paul's point, and even James in a few places, are exactly the same here. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, imagine then how you would talk about your life from the moment of your salvation on. This is where James begins to speak in chapter 2. He says, you're going to say that you're saved because you have faith? Well, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You will see evidence of Christ in me by the way I speak, the way I treat people, the way I care for widows and orphans, the way I care for those who don't have enough clothes and enough food. There's action that accompanies my salvation. And James isn't saying these things as a source of pride or arrogance. He's just stating the obvious. It is impossible to come into contact with the God of salvation and walk away unchanged. We don't get to just say, oh, I did that. Our lives are tangibly, measurably different when we are saved by Jesus Christ. Speech, values, ethic, choices, all these things are transformed because Christ is all to the believer. So James holds up a very simple test. You say you have faith. All you have is words. Oh, I'm a believer. But what does the evidence of your life say? In this letter, the evidence is damning because they are mistreating the weak and the poor and the impoverished among them. They're not caring for widows and orphans as they ought to. They're practicing favoritism. James's point is not that this church or these people have lost their salvation. His point would be, oh, you, you were never rich in faith to begin with. You live as with the ethics of a non-follower of Jesus because you are a non-follower of Jesus. And to this, Paul would say, amen. There is continuity between the two. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. That's right. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. That's right. Not by works, so no one can boast. That's right. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul, James, together give us this full picture of the relationship between faith and works in the Christian life. What you and I tend to do is say works will get us there and then just uh, the testimony of our mouths apart from our lives will keep us there. Paul and James and the rest of Scripture say, ah, that's, that's damning theology. Faith gets us to Christ. And then evidence flows from a life that is truly, genuinely saved. So it begs the question of us, 
What are the works in my life that give evidence that I belong to Jesus Christ? This is not meant to create anxiety or panic in us, but honest, gut-level evaluation. If our church vaporized from these premises today, would the town of Hingham and our surrounding communities notice any difference? Or would they only be happy to build more old houses on this property? If you were removed from your neighborhood, would your neighbors notice a change in care and concern and love? You and I are saved for good works. To live the gospel and to announce the gospel until the day of Christ's return, we have to live this way. This is how Jesus transforms a church. The church that James is writing to is a church that gets it wrong. The church he's calling them to be is a church transformed by Jesus Christ, a church that works out of their faith in him. So James, throughout his letter, pinpoints all these areas of transformation. Wisdom, worship, work. Fourth major theme throughout the whole letter of James is our words. This is an area where Christ transforms us, our words, our speech. Look at chapter 3 with me. This back half of James's letter is supremely concerned with the words we speak. He's unrelenting in his insistence that our words matter. Look at what he says, chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. I'm not so sure how serious we take James here. I mean, we'll read it with sort of that righteous groan that, "Mm, yeah, that's good, that's right, that's intense. But we may consider our speech to be a petty matter of sanctification. I would say, though, that we need to listen to James on this matter. Uh, Several, several years ago, uh, I worked a job uh, at a cubicle. And one day at my work, a a friend swung by and said, Hey, did you hear the news? Our friend Moose died. So we have this friend, uh, his given name is Aaron, but everyone knows him as Moose. And the reason he's called Moose is because he was born with antlers. It's a tragic story. His poor mother, devastated. Uh, He's called Moose because he's huge. He's a big guy. And so this was really shocking news to hear that this guy in his early 20s uh, had died unexpectedly. I said, well, what happened? And, And the friend said, well, I heard that he died in a a whitewater rafting accident. Now, Moose was from Colorado, but 
that just didn't make sense. He seemed to exceed the height and weight limit for whitewater rafts. I mean, he's really a large guy, like 6'8", had to be over 300, huge. That's, that's, what, I, I can't believe I haven't heard this. This, is, this would be a big deal to our little community here. So I tracked down Moose's phone number, and I called him up. And he didn't answer the phone, <clears throat> so that concerned me. And so I, what sort of voicemail do you leave in this situation? I just I pretended like I didn't know anything and everything was normal. I just said, hey, Moose, it's Cody. And I talked to him a while, just calling to check in. Hope you're doing all right. Call me back uh, sometime today when you get a chance. Uh, and then I thought about another mutual friend we had who was extremely close to Moose. And I thought, man, if anyone knows, Nate knows what's happened here. So I tracked down Nate's number, and, and I called him up, and he answered the phone. And so, you know, again, how does that conversation go? I just started with some simple chit-chat, and then I said, uh, hey, uh, have you talked to Moose lately? Have you seen him lately? He said, yeah, I saw him this weekend. We spent some time together just yesterday. I said, is Moose okay? Yeah, he's doing great. Doesn't like his job, but, you know, he's, he's tired of being single, but, yeah, he's doing good. I said, so Moose isn't dead. And Nate said, no, what are you talking about? And I said, look, I, so-and-so just told me a little bit ago that they heard Moose was dead. And Nate just started to laugh. He's like, no, he's not dead. How did he die? And I said, well, they said he died in a whitewater rafting accident. And then Nate just died. Moose, whitewater rafting, are you kidding me? He's too big for that. That's what I thought, too. And I said, okay, well, I'm... I'm glad, he's, I'm glad he's okay. So I was relieved. I hung up the phone. A couple of hours later, um, my secretary buzzed back to my desk. And she said, Cody, the ghost of Moose is on the phone for you? <laughs> so I said, hello. And he goes, Cody, <laughs> this is Moose from beyond the grave. <laughs> don't, don't play like that. That's not funny. Uh, but then I stood up and yelled above the cubicles, Moose lives. And, and there was great rejoicing in the office. Like the, the lesson was not lost on me that we can kill people with our words. So when James calls us to pay attention to this tongue that's set on fire by the flames of hell, he's telling us to do more than just remove vulgar language from our vocabulary. Are you a gossip? Are you a slanderer? Are you a liar? Are you arrogant with your words about yourself? Are you ripping people apart? Are you racist? James calls you to a better way of speaking, especially if you are a believer. Our vocabulary is informed by our experience in Jesus Christ. How could I receive mercy and receive forgiveness and receive blessing from Jesus and then reciprocate by ripping people apart with my words, by being irresponsible with my speech, by not controlling tone, volume, substance. It doesn't make sense. It's not easy. But it's still the direction that Christ calls us to. He transforms our speech. With our speech, we bless and we encourage and we build up and we edify and we speak truth and we speak life and we speak gospel. That's how the follower of Jesus talks. Jesus transforms us in all these many ways. 
wisdom, worship, work, words. One more W for you. Waiting. Waiting. Jesus changes the way we wait at the end of chapter 5. I love the way James's letter ends. It, it speaks a special kind of hope and encouragement to God's people. Right? It's, it's been pretty intense. Chapter 1, he, he steps in with gentle correction. <laughs> Chapter 2, he just begins to ramp up the intensity And it's hard-hitting at different points in this letter. When we get to chapter 5, verse 7 and beyond, uh, there's a bit of a shift in tone. He's still intense, he's still direct, but he's speaking for the encouragement and the edification of the family of faith. And so his letter closes with a call to the church to wait on the Lord and to do so together in unity. Look at verse 7 of chapter 5. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James tells the church to wait patiently for Christ. And while they're waiting to stand firm in the face of every conceivable trial, James knows that more trials lay ahead for this church, for our church. He knows they need to not just fix the mistakes of their past and present, but they need course correction for the future. They need to set their mind on what tomorrow and the days beyond are going to look like. And though they can't dictate the future, they don't know what's going to happen even the following day, still they can posture themselves in this way to be patient to stand firm, and to wait on the return of Jesus Christ. We belong to a long lineage of waiters. Abraham and Sarah waited for a promise of the Lord to be fulfilled. And so did Jeremiah. So did Isaiah. So did Daniel. So did Simeon. And so do we. Since the ascension of Christ... God's people have always waited for His return. And our waiting is not wasted time. It's not this passive thumb-twiddling, trying to explain it away to people who would tell us we're foolish. You see, in in the gap between promise given and promise fulfilled, God is at work in us and through us. And so in that waiting, we are to pray to each with each other. We are to encourage each other. We're to minister to each other in our sickness and in all of our needs. We're to strive with each other towards holiness, correcting one another when the situation requires it. This waiting is not passive time. It's a time in which Christ is transforming us to become his people. And it seems to me that no Christian can reach maturity without learning the lessons of waiting on the Lord. Patience is a hallmark of Christian character. And so here's this beautiful uniqueness to Christian waiting that James highlights here at the end of his letter. Nobody waits alone. Nobody waits in isolation. It is a communal activity, a patient togetherness. We wait on the Lord with each other, pray with each other, sing songs with each other, 
stand firm with each other. Jesus utterly transforms a life, utterly transforms a church. That's what we've heard from James over and over again in these past several months. That's what we see from 30,000 feet this morning, that Jesus is transforming us in profound ways. You know, know, the great reformer, you might remember, we talked about this a few months ago, the great reformer Martin Luther was not a fan of the book of James. That's putting it mildly. He called it a straw gospel. (laughs) If he had his way, the book of James would not even be in the Bible. If I were Luther's neighbor, I would go to his house and nail to his front door these five reasons this book is indispensable. Listen up, Marty. (laughs) we got to talk about this. In German, whatever that is. James teaches us how to triumph over trials. How to live according to the law of love. How to live our faith in tangible ways. How to use our words to build each other up. And how to live as a supportive and prayerful community of believers as we wait on the Lord. James is at times very direct. But he isn't merely pointing us to rules to keep. He's pointing us to a Christ to follow. Jesus is the one who gives us endurance and trials. Jesus is the one who teaches us how to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus is the one who teaches us how to have a faith that acts, how to speak, how to be a family of faith in unity. And Jesus is the one who gives us grace when we fall short of these standards. And that's what this letter is after all. It is gracious and loving redirection. To have the letter itself is to have God's grace in our hands. James knows the power of a church that follows Jesus. A few years ago, I read an article by a man named Matthew Paris, spelled with two R's, P-A-R-R-I-S. Uh, Matthew Paris grew up in the southeastern African nation of Malawi, what's now called Malawi. And he made a return trip after 45 years of being away. And it was after this trip that he sat down to write this article. And in his article, Matthew Paris is making an argument for how utterly indispensable evangelical Christianity is to the transformation of continental Africa, and specifically uh, his beloved home country of Malawi. And here's what Matthew Paris wrote, an excerpt from his article. He, He said, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Those who want Africa to walk tall amid 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing the material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we call development will make the change. A whole belief system must first be supplanted. And that belief system has to be supplanted by another referring to the church. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike 
the witch doctor, the mobile phone, and the machete. Paris makes a compelling argument for the unique power of the Christian church to transform a people, even a continent. What you and I don't know about Matthew Paris is that he is not a believer. In fact, Matthew Paris is a published and ardent atheist. But Matthew Paris has learned the lesson of James. And James arrived at this same belief 2,000 years before Matthew Paris did and has been beating this drum for a much longer time. That the church that looks like Jesus transforms the world. May that be said of us, South Shore Baptist Church, that when people see us, they see Christ before they recognize us. That our lives look so much like him, our speech reflects him so much, our living reflects him so much, that upon meeting us, they meet Christ in us. Let us be this kind of church, utterly transformed in every area of our lives, wholly devoted to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. So Father God, we praise you for this word. Thank you for James's letter to us. And it is so incredibly relevant and poignant to our lives this very moment. Thank you for this letter that speaks directly to dysfunction and sin in the church. And we recognize that we're not immune from that. We're not perfect. We don't have this down all the way. We need to be changed more and more into your likeness. Holy Spirit, thank you for the conviction that you bring to us as we study this letter. Father, thank you for your grace that is poured out on us as we turn to you. Jesus Christ, we praise you for a salvation that holds us secure even though we wander at times. So let us be a people who are wholly devoted to you. And I pray for my friends in this room who don't know you as their Savior, who are still searching you out, that they would see in the letter of James a picture of what you intend and what you create when your people follow you. God, I pray that the lesson of James would draw us to the cross, draw us to Jesus, and there we would find the transformation that our lives desire and that our world needs. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be doers of it and not hearers only. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.